Welcome everyone to the 30-minute Midas Touch from beautiful Dyersburg, Tennessee at the Herb Welsh Wrestleplex. Now, here is pound for pound and inch for inch, the best of the best in professional wrestling today. A wrestling genius worth his weight in gold. The Golden Boy, Greg Anthony. Welcome one and all to the 10th edition, the 10th episode of the 30-Minute Midas Touch. I am your host, the golden boy, Greg Anthony. And with me, as always, is the master of the mind games, <laughs> Mark Tipton. Okay, thank you for the introduction once again. I, once again, excuse me, I'm not sure I'm a master of mind games, but I do appreciate the accolade. I do need to write that one down and remember that one. But uh, this week... Uh, on the 30-Minute Modest Touch podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of uh, you or I setting the agenda as what we want to discuss, on this episode, what we want to do is we, you uh, post it on your Facebook page to open the floor for questions and see what the listeners, what they wanted to hear you talk about and describe and discuss. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. It's a little Q&A with the Golden Boy. Um, and so if you don't mind, I guess we could get right to it. The... Uh, I suppose what we could do is uh, kind of start more with a little more directed at you personally. Uh, one of the questions we got was about you winning the NWA National Heavyweight Championship and what that meant to you and meant to your career, among other things. That seemed like a good place to start. Sure. Um, you know, obviously that was um, one of the, the big highlights of my career. You know, when you talk about the NWA National Heavyweight title, you talk about Tully Blanchard and you talk about – my all-time favorite masked wrestler, the masked superstar. You talk about Tommy Rich, uh, Paul Orndorff, and, and so many great names are associated with that championship. And for me to be, you know, on that list uh, is obviously a huge accolade for me. And not only be on that list, but I'm a, I'm a three-time champion as well. So that kind of puts me near the front of the pack on some of that stuff. So um, obviously the NWA national title isn't what it was, in, you know, in, in the 80s and things like that, but it's still a huge deal. And it, it meant a lot to me to be a part of it. And the main thing is, like, the, the NWA national title, when I won it was uh, almost cursed for a couple of years because, like, it was like someone would win it and then they would get injured. And then they would they would put it on someone else, and that person got injured, and it it literally was one of those things where even when they were talking about um, putting it on somebody so I could win it for the first time, the somebody that we were going to put it on for me to get it got injured, you know what I mean? So it became this huge thing of like it was almost like I said it was almost cursed. So my goal when I became the, the national champion was to break that curse. You know what I mean? So, so uh, I was very proud that I was able to, to be the national champion. I think I did a, a really good job with it. And, you know, uh, that was a really good question. All right. Uh, certainly along those lines, uh, the secondary part of that question was they wanted you to discuss your time with the empire and what that meant to you. Yeah. I mean, the empire was, I mean, I I really believe that it was like a modern day four horsemen kind of thing, and and we did it in the NWA as to where people people in that time period in the NWA, and we're you know I don't want to get too deep into some of this because I want to do a three part series eventually on the NWA and and our time with it and and in different um uh, different points in time, but with the Empire, you know, um, 
at that time, the three big things were like, you know, it was Rob Conway, it was Jack Stain, and it was the Empire. Those were the, the three main components, I feel, of the, of the, of the NWA. And um, we were running rough shot. You know what I mean? Like, I was the national champion. Tim Storm was the North American champion. Uh, you know, one time, you know, Riviera and, and Conway were the tag champions. And then Steve Anthony was the junior heavyweight champion at one point. So we were going. You know what I mean? So, um, and when people, you know, people knew who we were and knew what we were about. And, you know, it definitely transcended, I think, what we were doing. All right, certainly. Very, very interesting to hear you talk about that aspect of your career. Uh, another, uh, along, you directed as you personally, was a question was asked about your time in Houston. Uh, Houston came up. Um, there, there were mentions of Lone Star. Uh, and a gentleman by the name of Paul Bosch. Um, would you like to talk about that and expand upon that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my time in Houston was – that was part of the Empire stuff too. Like me and Matt went down there as a tag team. And uh, we went down there, and, and the, the gimmick was at first was um, they knew Matt Riviera was coming, right? Uh, and I wasn't advertising or anything like that. So I actually came in, and I was supposed to be Matt Riviera's personal photographer, Right. So the first night I'm, I'm out there and I'm taking pictures of Matt and stuff like that. And like we got thrown into a tag team thing. And Matt said, well, I don't even have a partner, but, you know, I can beat any of you chumps with anybody. I could beat him with my photographer here. Right. And then once I got in the match, they saw that I was actually a wrestler and I could go. And we won the tag titles the first night in. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, what the hell is going on? Right. The first night we were there, we're cutting a promo after that match, after winning the tag team titles. And a, a girl in the front row got so mad she threw a full Coke can at us and missed us by millimeters. And, like, was screaming and cussing and stuff like that. Had me carried out by security and her, and her dad. Right? And we get to the back. And, of course, Houston at this time, a lot of great talent, a lot of, you know, stuff like that. But they were very ROH. They weren't, they weren't geared towards heat. They were geared towards, you know, performing these, you know, matches. You know what I mean? So, like, we get all this heat. You know, we get to the back, and they're like, how did you guys do that? And they're like, that's what we do, brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, that was a very memorable point. Uh, as far as, as, far as uh, Paul Bosch goes, Paul Bosch was a, <clears throat> you know, a, a very unique entity in professional wrestling. You know, basically the way some territories worked was um, some people owned towns. You know what I mean? They didn't, they didn't have a whole territory they worked with. They owned one town. Paul Bosch owned Houston. He was the promoter in Houston. And then uh, the Dallas booking office, whether it was Gary Hart or Fritz or whoever was booking at the time, they supplied talent usually to Paul Bosch. But Paul also, you know, he, he liked to be out of the realm a little bit. If, if the Dallas office was part of the NWA, then sometimes Paul Bosch liked to book the, the WWE champion the WF champion. So he would have he would have matches like, you know, Harley Race versus Bob Backlund. You know, stuff like that. So like that the Houston thing was a very unique thing cuz everybody kind of came through there on a whim. You know what I mean? So like when um the NWA eventually uh Bruce Tharp and them kind of acquired that footage and that footage is some of the most unique footage out there. And actually, you know, WWE tried to buy it but they lowballed them. Right, and the girl who lowballed him actually got fired because she was trying to play games with his footage, and he ended up saying no and didn't sell it to him. Right, oh. and like she ended up getting fired because you know they all of a sudden they're supposed to have the corner market on all this old 
historical footage and here's the stuff of of andre and harley and bob backland and like all these old school guys that are only supposed to be on the wwe WWE network Network. yeah but now it's it's on you know it's available through what was nwa classics i think at the time all right certainly that 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 is something the wwe network is something that uh they you know invested a lot of a lot of their prestige in, and so I understand how that could happen. One of the things he mentioned, and uh, as you described the reaction of the crowd, and and I guess I should apologize for laughing. That is a serious matter. Obviously, we don't want the fans interacting with wrestlers, but I do admit when I see someone get that involved in, it does it warms your soul. It does it? because, as I have said, I consider professional wrestling the ultimate audience participation event, just not physically. Yeah, we want to <laughs> please don't throw things. And uh, I don't want to make light of that at all. Um, and one of the things is, you know, since we're located in the Mid-South area, we're very close to Memphis. Uh, it does make sense to me that one of the questions that came up that was directed to you was about the history of wrestling in Memphis. In particular, the question was, what was your favorite Memphis angle of all time or feud or however you wish to you know, reference it? Yeah, that's kind of a loaded question because I, I like so many of them, but the, the main one is almost like a, it's almost like a what could have been, right? So like my favorite thing ever has got to be Eddie Gilbert running over Lawler, <laughs> yes. right? Because it's yes. it's just so memorable and it's so like he literally ran him over with a in car the lot. in the parking lot of the studio. Ran him over the car, right? Yes. And it was, I mean, even if you watch it today, it is jaw-dropping. If you've never seen that footage before, you're like, oh, my God, he just killed Jerry Lawler with a vehicle in the car, in the parking lot. So, like, that's my favorite thing. But the problem is it was so good that the people on television watching started calling 911 that Jerry Lawler had just been murdered <laughs> on television by Eddie Gilbert. Right, so to calm everything down, Lawler had to come back on television like Superman, and basically say, "I'm okay, and I'm going to get a hold of Eddie Gilbert." Now, how great would that angle really have been if, if he could? Yeah, it. if he could have took six weeks off and like give updates from the hospital, like we don't know he's got internal bleeding and this, this, this. I mean, that would have oh my, there's so much business could they could have done. I mean, they did a good business off it anyway, but I, it's almost like you know, what if. I mean, that is such a big what-if for me. So that's that's my favorite. All right. I certainly understand that, and I do recall that one as well. And uh, anytime you have a segment of television that inspires calls to 911, although we don't encourage people to do things like that, it certainly is memorable. And uh, just if I might chip in an honorable mention, uh, I would like to uh, put in a vote for the match in which it was a cage match between Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol in which it was discovered later that Tommy Rich had hidden underneath the ring. Drunkenly. Yes. Been yeah. drinking all night long. Yes, consuming adult beverages underneath the ring, and he was there all night waiting until this moment, just the right moment to come out and help Austin Idol. And they, sh- they sat, excuse me, they sat Jerry Lawler down in the ring and shaved his head. Yeah. The audience, as I recall, were near a riot. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were, you know, beating on the cages and wanted to get in the ring. And as I recall, they had to have assistance to get Austin Idol, Tommy Rich, and Paul Dangerously, Paul Heyman, as he's mm-hmm. now known, get them safely, right. <laughs> as, as safely as they could, get them back to the dressing room area. Well, and so, even even another honorable mention, I'll, I'll go a little further with you is. Um, how about you know Lawler breaks his leg playing flag football, or whatever it is, with his buddies, 
And, like, Jimmy Hart has to go on television and say, hey, you know, what do you do with a thoroughbred that breaks his leg? You go back and shoot it in the head. I mean, that kicked off some huge business, right? So, I mean, that, to me, that those are you – know, you know, you had a good point with the cage match. That's a good, that's an obviously another good one too. Is you know the, just the turning of the tide that that suggested in the eyes of Memphis wrestling fans. Okay, uh, well let me indulge one last one. How about the the drawn out time period over which Jerry Lawler chased the AWA World Championship? All those matches with Nick Bockwinkel that culminated with his defeat of Kurt Henning. We'll go back to when he was chasing the NWA because the yes. whole reason they left the NWA. To join the AWA was so Lawler could be AWA World Champion because it was he was tired of chasing, 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 and he, he never was going to be NWA World Champion, right? So they had to switch gears and go to AWA so he could finally be the World Champion, right? So you're talking about 15 years, 10, 15 yes. years that he chased a world title of some kind before he finally beat Kurt in 88. Yes, lots of tremendous memories through there. But I do need to move on to, to another question here. I don't want to... Uh, shortchange anyone but uh in there you mentioned jimmy hart and so that kind of like gives me a chance to segue to a next question uh, another of the questions was about the role of managers their importance uh and as a secondary part of this question is sovereign their importance your personal favorite my personal favorite hands down is, is jim Cornette. By far. I mean, just it's part of the era that I grew up in. Obviously, I saw more Jim than I saw anyone else. But I I just felt that his his style and the way that he did things complimented everyone involved. You know, Bobby Heenan, you know, a lot of people say Bobby Heenan's the greatest of all time. And I I think Bobby Heenan's amazing as a manager. I think that as a commentator, sometimes that he tended to be too funny with certain aspects that when, when guys are supposed to be serious, when Bobby Heenan wanted to be serious and wanted to get stuff over, he couldn't be beat, right? But he, he picked and picked and choose who he did that for. When he was doing it for Flair, it was amazing, right? But if he if there's someone in the ring that he didn't necessarily care about, then he would spend the next, you know, 10, 12 minutes just cracking jokes about whatever. You know what I mean? He's witty and funny, and that's that's all entertaining. But at the same time, you got a guy in the ring busting his hump trying to get over, uh, help him out a little bit, you know? So, yeah, um, Cornette's my favorite by far. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Gary Hart. Gary Hart was another guy that he was actually a manager-manager that took a guy and developed his gimmick and developed his character from from beginning to end. You know what I mean? And, like, I have Gary Hart's book, and if you go try to find Gary Hart's book on eBay, it runs about seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars 800000 now on eBay because it's out of print, right? I got my copy for $75.00. You know, and that was a lot then, you know what I mean? But I went through and I read that book, and it, it is by far the best psychology book that I've read because it's going to tell you how to how he developed all the guys, who all he developed. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's almost like a who's who of wrestling sometimes when you think about all the people that he gave a name to or he gave a gimmick to or he put them in this position to do this. You understand? It's like everybody. It's ridiculous. All right. Well, I certainly – Appreciate that. And uh, one of the things that came up with the area of managers, I know someone we've mentioned your opinion and relationship with uh, Bobby Eaton. He is someone who I'd cite as an example who've really capitalized on having managers uh, during his career. Uh, we've mentioned this before, obviously, his time with Cornette. And then and during his time at WCW, I've, as I recall, he was part of the Dangerous Alliance. Now, I've mentioned Paul Heyman in Memphis, Atlanta, and we all know he went on with. Uh, uh, Brock Lesnar and what he's doing with Roman Reigns now. Obviously very important and beneficial to the people they represent. All right. Uh, one thing 
and this may uh, spar off some serious conversation, is one of the questions was about secondary titles. This is something that, you know, has bothered me from time to time. And the person who wrote this question, I thank them for this question, because they asked, who do you think does the best job of keeping importance on the secondary title? The the gist of the question was that he felt like, for instance, the Intercontinental title in the WWE is not viewed with the importance mm -hmm. or the significance that the questioner felt it should. And so he was trying to say, hey, who do you think does the best job of maintaining the importance of that title and making it a vital part of the promotion? Uh, no one anymore. <laughs> I mean, they don't even have their, their main title have uh, the importance it needs to have. So... Yeah, secondary titles nowadays are they're literally. I mean, look at WWE. I think we counted it one time. I think they have like nineteen or, or twenty two championships in WWE, counting Raw, SmackDown, NXT, uh, NXT UK, all that kind of stuff. And I basically, you know, in a post one day, said how we could dwindle that down to like eleven or nine or something like that, and they'd all still have importance. Um, so, yeah, the Intercontinental title back in the day. You know what I mean? That was the workhorse title. You know, your draw was going to be your Hogan, obviously. But then if you want to see the work, you want to see the really wrestling match, you know, it was going to be the Kurt Henning. It was going to be the Bret Hart. It was going to be, you know, Steamboat and Savage and those kind of guys, right? So, and it was a good launching pad, too, for like, well, they did really good with that. Maybe we should give them a shot at the heavyweight title. You know what I mean? It's a kind of kind of a bridge between the two. That's a, that's a really good formula for running a wrestling company, but no, no one follows that anymore. It's like they hot potato or it doesn't mean anything. You know, they're losing in non-title matches all the time, or there's just no, there's no importance. There's no urgency to be it. Like I said, we, they've spent so many decades telling us that it's phony and it's fake and that, you know, all these decisions are arbitrary. Then none of it really holds there. There was a, there was a point in time that I could sit here and I could tell you every intercontinental champion in order from start to finish. Right, and now I couldn't even tell you, you know, at all over the last ten, fifteen years. It's just it's been so convoluted on everything, you know. So yeah, that's definitely something that needs to be. If we could correct it, that's definitely something that needs to be corrected. All right. Well, uh, while on this subject, if you indulge, indulge me a little bit, this certainly on the opinion and status of titles. Uh, I have a, a minor pet peeve right now, and it's revolved around what certainly isn't the second title in WWE, but that's the 24-7 championship. It is technically a championship. They do have a championship belt. But the way it is treated and portrayed on television, to me, it not only makes it a joke, but to me, it kind of diminishes championships in general, the way it's treated, where it's handed off to celebrities, and everyone wins with a roll-up and... And it is something that's a real, it's in my crawl, you know, so to speak, thorn in my side every time I see it. And I want to let you speak about that if you would. Yeah, I mean, so when, okay, when the 24-7, the hardcore 24-7 title came out in the late 90s, you know, we there was a roster full of guys that were really over and were doing a really good job of being over, right? So it was it was immensely hard then to get television time for anything, right? So the 24-7 title then was a way to get, hey, let's let's all these guys that just are on the cusp of getting television time. Instead of two of them getting television time, we can do 10. You understand? And this is a way for them to be a part of the show and have something going on, but not at the same time not diminishing all the rest of our talent 
and things like that, right? Um, which I think was a good was a good you know a good decision at the time, you know, a sign of the times, if you will. But now, like we said. Now the main title doesn't mean anything. Now there's hardly any actual stars. You understand? To me, there's no reason to have a 24-7 title where you're having this hodgepodge of guys, you know, because they're not going to get over doing that because no one no one's over on the show, really. You know, no one is no one is so over on the show that they can carry things on their own. So it's, it's just, to me, it's a lose-lose situation. Like you said, when you have celebrities and things like that get involved and they're winning titles, it just it diminishes everything. All right. Um, on this vein, we're we're kind of speaking largely at a national level right now. Uh, one of the another of the questions that came in that uh, did pique my interest was a discussion of the big promotions, the WWE's, AEW, even New Japan. If you want to go in there, um, let's say what is the pros and cons of working for those promotions. There are obviously tremendous benefits, but there are some drawbacks also. And the question we're saying, hey, let you speak about that from a professional point of view. I mean, the goal obviously is to make a living at what you love and make a living at professional wrestling. And all those major companies, you're going you're gonna to do that. You're going to make a living. Um, the problem is, you know, like WWE, for instance, I, you know, you have no say-so. And, you know, hardly anything, I think. You don't get to... What you say, what you do, what you wear, where you are, you know, you know, anything you do in a match, I mean, anything, you know, anything you want to do, it's, it's pretty much regulated some way, shape, or form by the WWE. Yes, they make a great living, but that's the price they pay. You know, me personally, I'm a, you know, I'm a very creative person. If you, if you handcuff me creatively, then it, 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 no amount of money can really be worth that to me at this point in my life. You understand? AEW? Same thing. You're going to make a ton of money. You're going to get that con money. You know they're 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 signing guys to contracts that are unrealistic for for the talent that they have, in my opinion. But at the same time, they may ask you to do some really stupid garbage. You know, some things that, like me personally, I would never do. You know what I mean? Like like the transgender matches or intergender with the transgender or whatever the whatever gender you may have this time or whatever it is. But I just don't. I'm not. You know. You're at the you're at their will at that point, you know. Um, now Japan, Japan, you know they still treat it like a sport, but at the same time you got to be able to do that style. You know, I'm I love Japan at points, but you know most of the time I'm a, you know, strong style. I'd rather do Southern style. You know what I mean? Southern style is a lot more about selling and, you know, things like that. So uh, everything has its benefits. Obviously, the benefit is money. You know, the drawbacks are going to be creatively and who's going to give you the freedom to really do things who's really going to have you do professional wrestling and not, you know, be on a television show about wrestling. Yeah. That's mentioned the restrictions on the talent that I know one of the recent controversies was there was a controversy about uh, WWE talent doing some online gaming and outside things and then placing restrictions on that, which were things that they were doing in their off time. And, uh, and, you know, but when you sign that contract with the company, they do, uh, exercise that level of control. I'd like to take this in a little more fun and uh, positive hypothetical perspective, so to speak. One of the next questions that really appealed to me was that uh, hypothetically, if in your favorite match, if the roles of heel and babyface were reversed, would it still be your favorite match? And how would it be different technically? 
Um, of course, I have I have so many favorite matches. Um, but let's let's pick. Let's go with uh, Shawn Michaels versus uh, Kurt Angle. You know, at, at WrestleMania was it twenty two? Right? Is that what it was? I believe so. Or is it twenty twenty one or twenty two? Either way, one of those. Where they had the great match. <laughs> uh, like I said, Kurt Angle versus HBK. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Sean was, was babyface. Kurt was heel. But so if you switch those roles, you know, heel Shawn Michaels versus babyface Kurt Angle would still be an amazing match. It would be completely different from what they did, but it would still be amazing. And I, I'd almost venture to say it might even be better just because Sean was – was so good at being a heel sometimes. You know what I mean? You imagine him flopping and flying around for the for the belly-to-bellies and stuff like that as a heel, you know, Kurt making that, that realistic comeback that he makes. You know, so uh, I think it'd still be a great match. It would be completely different than the one we got, though. All right. Uh, that was certainly one that I thought was fun and interesting, and, and I'm sure someone on social media will correct us. I'm trying to remember – when you mentioned that match, I'm wanting to say 21. I think it's 21, but I'm not. Uh, I've, been but, the, I've been hitting the head a lot of times. But, too, so. but if, if we are wrong on that, um, certainly stand to be corrected. Um, here's another one along this same line. And I thought this was put in an interesting way. They said, if you could get, in effect, a money in the bank briefcase, obviously a championship shot. At your league, you know, whenever you wanted it. But they made it all time. In any promotion, at any time in history, you know, and they mentioned WWE, WCW, et cetera, and so forth. When or where would you like to cash that in to be a part of that, if hypothetically you hypothetically. could? Um, well, money-wise, obviously, you you try to go, you know, during Hulkamania, <laughs> you know, in WWF, you know, money-wise, if, if I was chasing the money, right? Uh, for me, though, you know, I was more of an NWA kind of guy. You know what I mean? Because I, I liked a lot of the, the, the realistic workhorses that they had there. And 1988 is my favorite year of all time. It is my favorite year for wrestling. It is my favorite year for movies, for music, for just about everything. 1988 is, is my favorite. So I would probably go early uh, 1988, you know, because they ended up selling to, to Turner at the end of 88 or early 89, I think. So, like, and that's kind of when things started going downhill. So, I would cash in probably January of 88 <laughs> and try to have a run, try to have the last run as NWA world champion there, you know? All right. Well, that's a very good answer. That's interesting. And, and as a, and I stand to be corrected again, but I think 88 may have been uh, the year that Lawler won the AWA world championship as well from Kurt Hennig. May 5th. Oh, very good. Uh, thank you for bailing me out on that. And the kind of the uh, a good sum up question, and what is a very very open ended question that is at this point probably unfair to put to you with the limited time we have remaining. Who is the greatest professional wrestler of all time? Uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, you probably know this about me too. I I've been a huge Ric Flair fan most of my life, right? So. Woo, you know. Um, <laughs> however, you know, the thing is, you know, you're never supposed to meet your idols, right? So we had Ric Flair booked in Arkansas. And uh, the whole time we have him booked, I'm thinking to myself, please don't let Ric Flair be a dickhead. <laughs> 
I built him up Boy, so Hulk. much. I built him up so much in my head, you know, as as my favorite wrestler of all time. The reason I'm probably in this business, blah blah blah, this blah 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 that. Please don't let him be a dickhead. Well, uh, that was that's the worst I thought I could get. If I if I met Ric Flair and he's a he's a dickhead, then that my dreams are crushed, right? Well, I was wrong again. the The worst thing that could happen was he don't show up at all, and that's what happened. He he the day before the event canceled on social media, didn't call the promoter, didn't call anyone involved, just posted a thing saying, Hey, I'm not coming to this event or this event this weekend and left everyone else with, you know, holding the bag with their dicks in their hands. And I was very, very disappointed in Ric Flair uh, as a person, as a professional and stuff like that. And so it's hard for me to call him the goat with such a personal and visceral effect that he's had on my life now, right? So, like, when, when we talk about the greatest of all time, I still go with a guy like Shawn Michaels, uh, Terry Funk, Harley Race, uh, Jack Briscoe in some cases. You know, those are the kind of the ones that I – Arn Anderson for me, you know. You know. But go ahead. You want to oh, no, no. Well, you, you, you're a man after my own heart on this. Arn Anderson, I've referred to – the way I view it is he's my favorite horseman yeah. as, the, as the way I think it. Ric Flair was almost – it was almost Gladys Knight in the pips in, 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 right. for a large part of that time. And yeah. I understand that. and I don't know why they did it. But to me, Arn Anderson was the horseman. And so he's – I don't – I would not refer to him as the greatest of all time. I would – I do refer to him as my favorite horseman. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he doesn't have the – as great a resume as he has – yeah, he doesn't have the greatest. Re- he doesn't have the resume for the goat, right? You know, <laughs> but you know, with with Flair and and even Hogan to an extent, you know, like you know, Hogan turned the business upside down. Anytime anyone can say, I was the hottest thing in professional wrestling at this point, you know what I mean? Because that's that's a pretty small list to work off of. But you know, you you mentioned them. You mentioned Stone Cold. You mentioned The Rock. I mean, there's so many guys that there's a lots of guys that. Someone else could say they're the greatest of all time, and I'm not going to argue with them because that you know they have a right to that opinion on that particular subject. So uh, it's it's just been a, it's a loaded question for me nowadays. I can't I can't answer it like I want to answer it. How about that? All right, I certainly appreciate, it. and we uh, I, and on behalf of the Golden Boy, I'd like to appreciate uh, express our appreciation for him for sending in the questions, and uh, I guess I, I personally would still. Uh, slip this in, vote for Ric Flair. This is a, there's a times where I separate the art from the artist, so to speak. And my opinion of his in-ring career, his ability to speak on the mic, just all around and what he meant to professional wrestling, I'll, I will overlook a great many things as a result. But that's, is, is that's o- very is, self Is O.J. the greatest running back? <laughs> is, no. Is Benoit the greatest technical wrestler of all okay, time? Okay, no, first of all, we're not supposed to mention his name. <laughs> No, this isn't the network. Oh, this isn't the network. Yeah, so, okay. this is the third so minute. Allowed, such, we can we so can talk about. We're that. allowed to mention that name. Okay, then he who must not be mentioned. Right. Um, I do understand, but Rick Flair for me. Right. For all those years of tuning in at six oh five on Saturday yeah. and watching, for instance, that clash of champions match with Sting. Yeah. Still is yeah. near and dear to my heart. Yeah. The attacks and the attacking Dusty Rhodes in the parking lot and the way I felt as I was screaming at my television as a very young person. <laughs> Those things will always be wonderful memories for me. And so I try to separate his personal life away from the ring, from his performance, which in my mind is second to none. Absolutely. We, we, and you have to do that sometimes. Obviously, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of shady people in professional wrestling that do a lot of shady things. And even to the extent of, you know, there's lots of people that um, 
there's lots of people that love Vince Russo. You know that he's you know he's done a lot for them in their career and and they're fans of his. You know, meanwhile, I I can't see it. And Jim Cornette, oh, Jim Cornette definitely can't see it. No. So, but yeah, there's times when you, sometimes you have to do with um, how they treat you and how, and what your experience has been with this person and that person. So that's been my experience. As it always is here on the 30 minute Midas Touch, I want to thank you everybody for sending your questions, and uh, we will see you next week.